One of the reasons I love Cornerstone is because evangelism has always been at the forefront of our values. Cornerstone works hard to present the gospel in many venues and has made this a safe place for people to consider the claims of Christ. I love Cornerstone because we share the truth of Jesus without shame. Okay, how many people are going like, ah! <laughs> so I'm, anytime I see something like that in, in a movie, I, there's something that comes over me, and I just, I just want to go, you know what, I, I, think, I think I'd be that guy. I mean, I, I think if, if someone was in trouble, I mean, someone I knew, someone I cared about, 
I'd like to think that I'm the kind of guy who would run toward them, who'd run toward the wave and help, and not the kind of guy who'd run toward the library. I mean, you get that he has an option. He's standing there on the steps, and, and, and he can go, look, <laughs> you don't see the wave. I see the wave. Good luck, you know, and into the library, and he's safe. But he chooses instead in that moment because somebody he cares about, somebody who's important in his life, is facing trouble. He, he runs toward the wave. He does just the opposite of probably what his heart was telling him. And I like to think that if that moment ever came in my life, that I'm a run toward the wave kind of guy. How many people in the room go, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping I'm that type of person too. I'd like to think I am. So the rest of you are going, tough luck, man. Too bad. I'm heading for the library. See, I, I'd like to think that if I was standing in my front yard and the neighbor was backing out of their driveway and their toddler walked behind the car, that, that I'd run toward the toddler. That, that even in that moment, even if I thought, you know, hey, I could get hit, that I'd move forward and not just stand there and observe or watch, but instead I'd rescue. I'd like to think that if I was at a family reunion and somebody stood a little too close to a candle and their clothes caught on fire, that, that I'm the guy that would grab a blanket and run toward them and be smothering the fire. You and I are going to come face to face with that question today. You and I are going to get asked, are we the type of people who run toward those who are in trouble, toward those who need us? Are, are we the ones that run at the way? Or are we the ones in that moment who opt for safety, who go, look, I've, I've got this figured out in my life. I'm okay. Sorry, you're not okay, but I'm, I'm going where it's safe. And really, uh, this discussion is going to revolve around this simple question. How important, how crucial is this story about Jesus anyways? I mean, how vital is it that our friends and our relatives and our neighbor who lives a couple doors down, how, how important is it that they figure this story out? And then we'll answer the question, Am I a run-toward-the-wave kind of person, or am I a run-to-safety? See, here's, here's what we know about our friends and about our neighbors and about our relatives, that most of, them, most of them don't quite understand what you and I've come to understand about Jesus Christ. That, that if you were to have a conversation with them, what, what they would most likely say is, look, I get it. I get that I'm not a perfect person. I get that I've got stuff, you know, in my life. So here's how I'm trying to navigate. I'm trying to be a pretty good person. You know, I, I gave some of the stuff out of my garage to Goodwill last year, and, you know, there was that donation to help, dil, you know, dig a well in Africa. And, and I, I'm just, you know, overall, I'm trying to do good stuff. And, and, and my hope is, is that, you know, you get to the end of life, and you got to go upstairs and you got to meet the big guy that somehow the good stuff you've done kind of makes up for the not so good stuff you've done and somehow you know it comes out in the wash some of our friends would say 
you know, I'm, I'm trying to go a little further than that. I'm trying a little harder than that, and so that's the reason I've kind of incorporated the whole religious thing. I mean, the reality is I like God. I think God's pretty cool, and, you know, I was baptized as a baby, and, you know, I, I've tried to get to church several times every year, and so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, do the religious thing, and I figure if, if you throw a little religion on top, then you get brownie points for that, and, you know, kind of gets you some extra credit, and that's how it works. You get the scripture says something completely different than that. That you and I who have come to know Jesus Christ know something completely different than that. That what the Bible says with just real, real clarity is that every one of us has done stuff in our lives, stuff that has broken the heart of God, stuff that disappointed God. Scripture would just call it sin. It, it, it's every time that a, a lie went tumbling off my lips. You know, before I even realized I was doing it, I was halfway into it. And it's every time my neighbor bought an Escalade and I was envious. Or those few moments of being lustful, it, Scripture just says those were wrong. They were sin in my life. And that in the moment in which I did that, I brought real darkness into my life. What, what most of us don't necessarily get, don't quite understand, is how dark dark is. And although many would sit around and argue and say, well, you know, I haven't told as many lies as my neighbor, or I haven't lusted as much as my cousin, Scripture would say it doesn't matter. It's dark. And so our friends say, okay, so I'll, I'll do good stuff. I'll, I know that I've got bad stuff, but I'll just add good things to it. I'll add being a good person, and I'll buy the Girl Scout cookies because that helps a good cause, and I'll just add good things to my bad things, and, and maybe that dilutes my bad things enough. And there aren't enough good things. It's not possible to dilute the dark. And so some have said, okay, so then I'll just, I'll just be religious. I'll just add, you know, being baptized or, or maybe uh, visiting with the priest or whatever that is to this. I'll just be religious enough that somehow the dark doesn't matter, somehow the sin and what Scripture is just unequivocally clear about, what Scripture doesn't apologize for, and what hopefully all of us have come to understand is you can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. None of those things has the capacity to fix the darkness. Matter of fact, Scripture would simply say this about sin. For the wages of sin, the paycheck for sin, is death. Death, which simply means this. Any chance of having a relationship with God died with my sin. Any chance of eternity, any chance of heaven is dead because of sin. And there is not enough religion, there aren't enough good works, there's not enough nice things to do that could ever fix this. And that there's one answer, one solution to the darkness, 
in each of our lives. And that solution is Jesus Christ. He is the only thing that fixes this. So if that's true, if, if that's accurate, there's a wave coming. And here's what you need to hear me say. This isn't my theology. This isn't my plan. This isn't something some Bible scholar somewhere dreamed up. You realize that this explanation is the very reason that Jesus came to earth, that Jesus left heaven to come be with you and me to die on a cross to explain this, that there was no remedy other than him, that something unique, something that could not be replicated, something that couldn't be copied happened on that cross that somehow fixed our sin and our darkness. Matter of fact, just so you know that this is, this is what Jesus taught, grab your Bibles real quickly. And go with me to the book of John. If you're not real familiar, if you go to the back of your Bible and then work to the left, you're going to find this book of John. And you'll want to see it. You'll want to know that this really is Jesus' words and not a pastor's words. It's John chapter 3, and there's actually a chance that more than half of us in this room probably have this verse memorized. I just don't know that we've taken the time to realize what it says. It's John chapter 3, verse 16, and those of you that have Bibles that your words are in red when Jesus speaks them, you know that this is what Jesus said about this topic. And, and here it is. It's John chapter 3, verse 16. It reads this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him third person singular, not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not a crystal, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through just in case you and I didn't get it, or maybe that we thought he overstated the moment, go with me to John chapter 14. It's going to be a little bit to the right in your Bible. John chapter 14. Verse 6. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered, I am the third person definite article singular, the way. Not an option, not, not one of many alternatives, not, not whatever you sincerely believe this week. I am the singular way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Not a way of life, I am life. And you ready? No one, 
No one comes to the Father except through me. And guys, you just got this isn't this isn't what a theologian, this isn't biblical interpretation. This is what Jesus came to teach. One more passage. Go to the back of your Bibles and go to the book of 1 John. We were just in the Gospel of John. Now if you go to the back of your Bible, almost to the book of Revelation, you're going to find this book of 1 John. So here's, get this, the very same guy who wrote the Gospel of John is now nearly 50 years later saying, look, 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 let me bottom line this for you. Let me be sure you got the message that nobody misses this. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Here's what it says. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You get that if this is accurate, then there's a wave coming at our friends. There's, there's something that our neighbors don't know that changes forever for them. And they have no idea. And the question that's going to get asked, the question that you and I have got to figure out, are you and I the kind of people who run toward the wave? The kind of people that say, look, look, I get that you may not understand this. I get, I get that you may feel like I'm being a little intrusive, but look, here's the deal. I love you too much to let this happen and you not know about Jesus. Are you and I the type of people who run toward our friends? Or are you and I the type of people who say, look, I'm okay, I've got this figured out for me and I wouldn't want to bug anyone and I'm heading towards safety. And Jesus is going to explain to you and I that our very assignment on earth, the very reason you and I are here, is God's hope that you and I are the type of people who run toward our friends. So grab your Bibles. We're going to go to one last passage today, and this is where we're going to uh, kind of land together. It's the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And again, this is Jesus teaching. In this moment, he's simply going to say, this has always been about you and I looking to our friends and saying, what I know, what I have figured out, you need to know, and, and, and I, I'm going to run toward you and explain that. Here it is, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Here's what it says. You, you, all of us, me, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You, me, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then catch the phrase, 
in the same way. So just like, just like salt is meant to change the things that it touches, just like a city set on a hill is obvious to everybody who's standing in darkness, in the very same way that someone placing a lamp in their house would place that lamp in the place where it would bring the most light to the most people, in that same way, you are the light. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And in this passage, Jesus gives you and me three principles, three, three values in which he says, this is what it means to run toward the wave. This is what it means to run toward our friends and say, I got to help. Okay, principle number one. It's in verse 15. Here's what it says. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So get the moment, get the context. Pre-electricity. It's now sunset. You're inside of a house, no moonlight coming in. And all you've got to light that room is a small oil lamp. And Jesus says, look, look. You don't take that little lamp and put it under a bowl. No one would do that. That'd be crazy. You don't put it in a corner. You strategically place that lamp in that room, wherever it is, that it will give the most possible light to everybody who's in that room. So whether that's up on a shelf or whether that's on a lampstand, you place it strategically where it causes the greatest effect. Jesus says, in the same way, God strategically places you and me where we cause the greatest amount of light for him. If some of us in this room, if you were asked to explain, hey, how did you decide to buy your house? How did you decide that was the right neighborhood? We'd probably say something like this. We'd probably say, well, you know, we, we looked and we looked and we looked, and then this floor plan, I mean, it was perfect. It was a great room for entertaining. The kitchen was the perfect size. I mean, we just fell in love with it the moment we walked in the door. We, we might say something like, hey, we were driving down the neighborhood. There were kids everywhere, and we just thought, what a great environment for our kids to have all those friends, and we, we fell in love with the house before we even walked inside. If you and I were asked to explain how we ended up with the job that we've got right now. We'd probably say, well, you know, it's, it's not even necessarily a great story. It's just, I put my resume out there. I mean, I put it everywhere I could. There, 13 places didn't even call me back. And then all of a sudden, there was this one place, and they loved my resume. And I went in for the meeting, and it was just like we clicked. And I've been working there. And i, I got to be honest, I'm not even sure I like my job all that much, but I got it. How many of us in this room would say, hey, in my family, there's an Uncle Olaf. We're not sure why he's in the family or how he got in the family, but we've got Uncle Olaf. Anybody? You know, maybe he's a testimony to inbreeding or something, but you're not sure. Just... I don't know why Uncle Olaf is part of our family. According to this passage... 
Is it possible? Is it possible? I'm just asking that you didn't really pick your house? Is it possible that when you walked in and saw that floor plan that God himself whispered in your ear and said, man, isn't this a great, great room? Wouldn't this be a fantastic neighborhood for your kids? Because God was strategically placing you in that neighborhood where you would give the most light because he knew. You ready for this? If your neighbors were ever going to have a chance to understand that story, you living in that neighborhood was their best chance. Strategically placed. Is it possible that the reason the other 13 companies didn't even read your resume, that you went in and suddenly there was the job, is because there's a coworker in the next cubicle over, and that Jesus knew their best shot at ever figuring out God was you sitting in the next cubicle to them. Is it possible, I'm just asking, that the reason that Uncle Olaf is in your family and you sit at the other end of the table at all the family gathering, is it possible that God with intentionality put Uncle Olaf in your family because his best shot of ever finding Jesus as Savior was you. And he strategically located Uncle Olaf in your family. Second principle. It's verse 14. It says, you are the light of the world A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And again, get the moment, get the context. Pre-electricity, it's nighttime and you're traveling, pitch black, and you are looking off into the darkness and you're looking for any signs of light because light means people. And by the time you have a town or you have a city and Everybody's got a lamp in their living room, and people are navigating the roads in that town, carrying their little lamps. When you see the light, you know over there, over there is safety, and over there is refuge. And for miles away, you can see the glow, and that's where you head. Because you ready? It's obvious there's a city over there. And then Scripture says, In the same way, in the same way that a city is obvious by its light, God says, I'm going to make it obvious to others that you're a Christ follower. See, I'm just going to put it out there so that they'll know you belong to me. Ever had a moment like this? You're, You're standing at the water cooler at work and Somebody tells an off-color joke, and you just kind of wonder, what am I supposed to do? If I'm a Christian, I mean, what, am I, what do you do when somebody tells me? Because do you give like the polite, ha-ha, or is that like condoning it if you do that? I mean, but, but if you don't, I mean, if you just like 
then do you look like you're stuck up and does that make it even harder to have a test? I mean, what do you do in a moment like that? What, what do you do when the department lands the big deal and everybody's going out to celebrate and they decide they're going to a strip club? I mean, what do you do if you're a Christ follower in that moment? I mean, do you, do you go with them and just kind of do this the whole time? I mean, because if you don't go, then it's kind of like you're a killjoy and you're not excited about the big deal getting landed, but what do you do? And you ever been in that moment just been frustrated and thought, God, why, why do you even put me in this position? I mean, why, why am I even being challenged? By, why would you even let me be in such an uncomfortable place? Is it possible? Is it possible that he's making you a city on a hill and that he's trying to make it obvious to everybody else in your department, everybody else on your street, that's a Christ follower? Remember Daniel? Remember the story of a young teenage boy whose country is invaded and he and his friends get dragged off into slavery? And no longer does he get to Babylon, and all of a sudden there comes one of these crisis of faith moments, a moment in which he's getting asked to compromise, will you do what everybody else is doing? And it's not even seem like it's a big thing. I mean, it's just, will you eat what everybody else is eating? And Daniel goes, I, I, I can't, it's kosher. If you're a teenage young man who just got dragged off in slavery, and you're going, really, Jesus, you're putting me in a place where I've got to make a stand over something as dumb as what I eat? Or is it possible? Is it possible that in that moment, God was taking a teenage boy who he was going to use to change a kingdom and turn the heart of a king, and from day one, he put Daniel in a position where Daniel had to declare, I, I can't. I'm a God follower. So that everybody who heard that conversation from that day forward would know to watch Daniel. City set on a hill. See, is it possible that some of the most uncomfortable moments that you've had with your relatives, some of the most uncomfortable conversations you've had with your coworkers, moments when you've had to say, look, I can't. I'm not trying to be a jerk, and I'm not trying to be a I can't. I'm a Christ follower. That, that those moments weren't really a burden. They were God positioning you as a city on a hill that your testimony about him would be obvious to everybody else in the room and they would spend the rest of their time watching to see what you would do next. See, a city on a hill can't be hidden. My wife, my wife worked out in computer sales for a bunch of years. I mean, and she was selling big deals. I mean, big deals to nation, national type companies. And she's going in and doing presentations. She's not doing this, you know, down in the IT department. She's doing this to the president of the company and all the upper management because it's that type of a deal. And she'd get in there, and in the middle of her presentation about computer solutions within the first 10 minutes, she would make sure that somehow she said in the presentation, I am a pastor's wife. 
And I challenged her. I said, Lisa, why would you do that? I mean, I don't even think that fits, does it? I mean, how do you even work that in? I mean, doesn't that seem like there would be some other more polite way to sneak that in like three months later? Here's what Lisa said to me. Lynn, I do this for two reasons. I do this so that from the very, very, very beginning, they'll know who I am. They'll know that they've got a Christ follower in the room and that I'm going to treat them different. I'm going to manage them different. My answers are going to be different because I'm a Christ follower. And I want them to watch me be different. Second thing, when I say it out loud, then I know that they know. And it helps me remember to be different. See, a city on a hill is obvious. You got, you got, I got bracelets on. Can I, just, can I just say to you, I'm not a bracelet guy. And anybody in here going to admit to being a bracelet guy? Okay. Mm. All right. I'm not. You, you know why I wear bracelets? I wear bracelets because when I stand in the checkout line at the store, the clerk in the checkout line says, hey, what are those? And I get to say, there's a little girl in our church, and uh, she's got brain cancer. And we're just being bold enough to pray that God would heal her. And this one, this one's for another little gal who's got leukemia, and we're just asking God to take it away. And then this one here is because I love my church. Matt, what church you go to? Cornerstone. It's just an opportunity to be obvious. It's just an opportunity to put it out there. I've got, I've got a bumper sticker on my car. Can I just say to you, I'm not a bumper sticker guy. I'm not. I know I should be. I'm the pastor of the church. I should, I, of all people, I should have the bumper sticker on my car. I, I don't have the bumper sticker on my car because I'm the pastor. I have the bumper sticker on my car because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to this place, and guess what they say? I tried this place because I saw all the window stickers. You get it's just a way for you and I to be obvious, to be a city on a hill. Third principle. It's up in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Is that possible? Can, can salt stop being salty? Have you ever even heard of that? Man, I tried that salt. I don't even know if that's possible. See, the only way I can even figure that salt could not be salty is if you left it in the shaker. If you never actually got it out. And I think what Jesus is trying to say there is, hey, your testimony, your words left unsaid are really unsalty. See, the only, the only way you can blow this is by not saying anything. 
And the reality is, is that if you and I are going to run toward the wave, if you, if you and I are going to be the best chance that our friends and our relatives and our neighbors have, there's going to come the moment you and I are going to have to open our mouths and say out loud, look, I get it. I get that you probably don't understand, and I, I get that you think I'm a little narrow-minded, but I, I have to tell you what I know. The only way to be unsalty is leave it unsaid. I'm youth pastoring in Yucaipa, California. Lisa and I were on this little block, and there was a house about three houses down, and Lisa and I kind of figured it may be that the whole reason we live in this neighborhood is for that set of neighbors over there. I mean, just talk about a house of chaos. He was having all sorts of affairs on her. She was having all sorts of affairs on him. You never knew from month to month, was he living in the house with his newest girlfriend or was she back in the house with her new boyfriend? Were the kids back in the house or were they away living with him? I mean, it was just like this revolving door. It was incredible. And we had gone down and tried to invite him to church and they really weren't very interested. And, and then her nephew came to live with her because he was so messed up they were going to help him. The interesting thing was we went down, we invited Mike to church. We invited him, in, and he was a high school kid, so he came to my youth group. And he was coming like every week. I mean, he came like five, six, seven weeks in a row. And then I got a phone call. See, Mike, as he had started down at the high school, had seen a little girl that he thought was cute, and he'd started talking to her. She had an ex-boyfriend who got jealous. He thought he was going to get back with her. And so he rounded up a couple of his friends, and they ambushed Mike in the park out on the basketball court. And while he wasn't looking, they came up from behind and cold-cocked him, and he went falling back and hit the back of his head. It caused severe brain damage, and he died a day later. So I'm sitting at Mike's funeral, and it occurs to me, I never opened my mouth. I invited him to church, but I, I never told him that. I never explained to Savior. I, and here's what I thought. I thought, you know what? If, if nobody else told him, then he didn't know. And if the reason he came to live in my neighborhood was because I was his best chance at hearing about Jesus. Then I let him down. And I sat in that funeral and I promised myself there will never again be another Mike. There will not be someone who God brings into my purview, someone who God strategically places in my life that I don't tell that story to, that I don't find a way, that I don't run toward the wave and say, look, I get it. I, I know you're going to think I'm just being religious, but i got to tell you the story. So here's the question this morning. How many mics do you have? Who, who are the people that God has placed in your life? Because you're their best chance. And God is hoping you'll run toward them, not away. 
So in each of our chairs on the front, in, in the cup holders, we've got these cards. If you just grab one of those cards right now, and here's what I'm just going to ask you to prayerfully ask, just prayerfully consider, that you would say to God, look, if this is the case, and who are the people in my life that you have placed in my life? Because I'm their best shot at this. I'm, I'm their best option for ever figuring out God. And I'm just going to ask you to write their names, the three names on that card. Now, if you're here and you don't have a pencil, we've got people who come down. They'll give you pencils. Just raise your hand. We'll get pencils to you. If you look really close on the card, you're going to see that there's a place for three names at the top and there's a place for three names at the bottom. And that's because in a little while, we're going to rip those apart. You're going to hand in half and you're going to keep half for yourself. Okay? Who are those three people who God potentially has strategically placed in my life because I am their best shot? Then let me ask you this question as you fill it out. Once you get those names there, I think another question to ask is, is it obvious to them that I'm a Christ follower? Have I put myself out there? Do, do they know they're dealing with a Christian when they're dealing with me? And then final question, have I ever opened my mouth and told them enough of the story? If I'm their best shot, Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we, we simply come before you this morning and we get to what you're saying to us is this is, this is a big deal. There, there is no other solution for people's lives. And, and that we have to make a decision that says I am either going to run toward my friends, I'm going to I'm going to inconvenience them, I'm going to inconvenience myself, but I'm going to run toward them because I care too much to let the wave hit them and me do nothing. So God, I just would ask that you would just even speak to us, that you would just whisper in our ears right now, these are the three people. This is, this is the neighbor down the street. This is your coworker in the next cubicle. This is, this is your uncle who I placed in your family strategically. I put them in your life because you are their best shot at hearing this story. That God, we would, without apology, just simply be obvious about our faith. That we would say, look, I'm a Christ follower, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't go there with you. I can't laugh at that joke. I'm not trying to be a jerk. I just, I answer to a higher power. And that God, we would have the boldness, that we would even look for the moment to quietly sit with our friend, to sip a cup of coffee with our neighbor and say, can I just tell you for a couple minutes what Jesus has done in my life? It's the most powerful story I know. And I get that it may not be politically correct, but I love you too much not to tell you my story. God, may we be the lampstand positioned in the middle of the room, the city set on a hill, the salt 
that changes everything for people around us. This we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.